I guess, you know, when you're doing a talk like on a topic like mental health, it's, it's really important to sort of, Ruth was just saying a little bit about ground rules, you know, that, um, you know, we feel free within reason to ask questions, but we, we don't want this to be something that is a distressing evening. We want it to be an empowering evening, an evening where there is some time for, for prayer and ministry, but I think what I would ask for the Q&A is that you don't ask one of those, I once knew someone who questions that's actually about you or someone real. Please ask a, a general question, if, if that makes sense. I, I won't answer a question about a particular person I, I can't do, I haven't met them, but more than happy to, to answer general questions. Um, and I guess one of the big things is just about an environment of, of safety, isn't it? So um, I'm going to talk allegedly for, for half an hour, but probably less than that. And um, then we've got some time for Q&A, and I'm probably going to try and talk less, more Q&A, want to hear from you guys, and then we're going to have um, some time of prayer. I'm going to play you a song I really like, and then David and some other guys are just going to come and lead us in a time of worship. So, so thank you so much for, for coming. I thought we might start off with a bit of an icebreaker. So, John, if you've got the first, first slide there, I'm going to work out if you know who these people are. So pop the first one up. Who knows who that is? Yeah. Sigmund Freud, the daddy of it all literally sometimes as well, and, and metaphorically. So um, Siggy got a little bit off beam in his old age, you know, got a bit into sort of strange words like penis envy and that sort of stuff. And there we are, I'll just say that's my first technical term of the night. Um, but joking apart, Freud was, I think, a little bit strange, and I think a lot of people think psychiatrists talk about all that sort of thing all the time. They don't. Um, and actually, the early work that Freud does and what the Freudians did at the turn of the century sort of Kicking things off, the basic idea about we all have defense mechanisms which we use to cover unbearable pain in some shape or form. And that's the essence of what I'm going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about addictions, self-harm, and eating disorders. Just put it all out there, okay? But the, the fundamental thing is these are some things that we do to, to cover up the, the, the pain. So we'll talk a little bit about the specifics of some of those things and also perhaps when to sort of start looking deeper, how to start looking deeper as well. Not that that's primarily your job as, as, as youth workers, but those will be questions that you face. Next one. For our more senior youth workers, anyone recognize that? A guy called Anthony Clare did a program on the, the radio when the Beeb was, was king in the psychiatrist's chair, began sort of putting topical mental health problems on the radio in the 60s, 70s. Um, the lid sort of came off emotions in a big way, if you like, in the 1960s, and um, people began getting interested in mental health problems. Before that, it was all suppressed, British, stiff upper lip. We don't talk about that here. Freud's in Vienna, but in England, you know, it's keep calm and carry on. Um, but we do need to talk about emotions. Next one. Well, the next there. Anyone recognize that? Again, an, an older an older person, some may recognize um, David, David Owen. Lord David Owen was a, a politician, sort of one of Paddy Ashdown's predecessors in, in the liberal camp. So it's going back a little bit, slightly older than, um, the, the, than most of you guys here, but your parents will probably have voted or, or not voted for him. And he was a psychiatrist before he went into to politics. There's actually quite a lot of doctors, quite a lot of psychiatrists end up in political life, partly because I think psychiatry is quite interesting. You know, it touches all parts of our lives. But he was a politician. Next one, some of you might recognize this person if you're football fans. And remember that goal where he went, Socrates, and sort of slid right across the one. It's one they always play, you know, 10 famous goals of all time. He's one of them. 
he's a psychiatrist. So little known fact about Socrates, not the philosopher from Greek times, the, the modern one. So he was a philosopher. And the last one, again, hopefully some of you will know this one. Anyone recognize him? He's not very nice. Slobodan Milosevic, okay, general sort of dictator, murderer, genocider, etc. Unfortunately, he was a psychiatrist as well. So I'm, I'm sorry that they're all psychiatrists, but they are. Um, I don't do anything. I don't do anything like that. But um, psychiatry is a really interesting speciality, and mental health is quite an interesting topic. Um, John, pop the next picture up. This is um, a picture. It's a sort of trendy sort of picture of um, a statue called Rodin's Thinker and sort of emphasizing what was happening with, with the Enlightenment and what was happening. This is a little history lesson here, just going to do two minutes of history. What happened a few hundred years ago was a whole bunch of people started sort of thinking and discovering science, and academic life kind of took a split. So if you go to most universities, what you'll find is they offer BSCs on one side for things like science and biology and chemistry and that kind of stuff. And on the other side, they offer BAs for things like arts and history and um, dancing and things like that. You get, you get BAs. And most universities have got this fairly clear split between the arts and the sciences. And of course, theology traditionally has been in the arts side, and you get a BA or a BD, and Christianity has been seen as a, an art, and divinity and study of religions is an arts. Medicine is a science. So that's always been on the scientific side. And that causes a whole bunch of tension, because what have science and Christianity got to do with each other? And when you start trying to have discussions about faith and about mental health and about science and that kind of stuff, it gets quite confusing. And psychiatry actually sits right in the middle, because if you think about it, you've got psychology, counseling. If you go to most universities, that sits in the arts side of it. And then you've got the medical school, experimental psychology, where they do nasty things to rats and that kind of thing, is on the science side of it. And the, these two kind of fit in the middle. So as a psychiatrist, I feel sort of half artist, half scientist some of the times. And those of you who, who, who've done degrees and sort of wondered where your Christian faith fits into that have probably experienced something of that dichotomy. And particularly in psychiatry, if I pop the next slide up, I'm not going to show you all the animations on this, but um, this is from a film called The Madness of King George. And this was a film, um, oh, I can't remember the actor's name, but it was a film that came out about, about 10 years ago. And it was about George III. They would have called it George III, except when it was released in America, a lot of the Americans said, did I see George and George II? Um, so they didn't call it George III. They, they called it The Madness of King George. But it was about King George III. And he was a king who, halfway through his reign, had a psychotic episode. He suffered from a pretty rare condition called perfuria, it's a liver condition, and your liver goes into sort of a kind of liver failure, and the byproducts, the metabolites that come from that cause you to go mad. And the king became mad. And the reason why this is really interesting is up until that point, madness and mental health were dealt with by the church. So people would be prayed for, demons would be cast out of them, hands would be laid on for healing. It was the church's job to look after mental illness. And as with many other parts of medicine, it was actually the church was doing most of the medicine in the 800s, the 1200s, the 1300s. You know, the church was doing most of the medicine. That's one of the things that, interestingly enough, happened when Henry VIII sacked the monasteries. He also sacked half the hospitals in the country as well. So, so major impact there, this link between church and health. But a lot of health had moved across, and doctors had started doing things like surgery and medicine and tonics and cures and 
opening hospitals and this kind of stuff. But, but madness was still looked after by the church. And this is an Episcopal church here where we're meeting, so the guys from this church will understand this. The king is the head of the Church of England. So you can't have a priest in the Church of England trying to cast a demon out of the person who's the head of the Church of England. Do you see what I mean? It, it, theologically, it doesn't make sense. It's a bit confusing. So, so what happened with the madness of King George is it really sort of blew open the doors, the idea that actually doctors might start getting involved in mental health and might start getting involved, and you had psychiatrists. I mean, initially it wasn't psychiatrists, it was neurologists, so Freud was a neurologist. But all this kind of stuff was going on, and it was as a result of the madness of King George um, that, just you can skip the rest of the slides, John, and just go on to the next actual slide there, just some shots from the thing, and that's the guy who eventually cured him. So you end up with this position where doctors are now getting involved in mental health problems. And ever since then, there's been a confusion and I guess if I'm going to say one thing today, is that there isn't a simple answer. So these four pictures up on here sort of symbolize very briefly the four major theories about mental health problems today. Top left, you've got the brain and neurons and something's wrong and there's not enough neurotransmitters and we need to give people pills and that, you know, something is wrong with the brain. That's your first possibility. The second possibility on the right there, a guy called Carl Rogers, who was a a psychologist, um, a sort of human, studied humanist um, schools of, of counseling and person-centered counseling. So most of you who've done a sort of general counseling course or listening course, it's really Carl Rogers that sort of dates back to. Um, then you've got down the bottom right, you've got sociologists and social workers who see mental health as primarily a problem that stems from loneliness and social isolation. And we all know that when you put men on desert islands, they go a little bit crazy, as we've seen the film with um, Tom Hanks in. Okay, so, so loneliness and deprivation, you get left alone with your brain. So there's a social cause for mental health problems. And then there's also, you know, I put a picture of the Bible there, but is this a spiritual cause? Is this because the person hasn't got enough faith or they're under attack or something like that? And the thing, the, then the question is, next slide, the question is, what's the treatment for it? And each of these schools has got an idea about treatment. So doctors come along and say, well, you ought to give the person a pill to change the level of the chemicals in the brain, and we'll, we'll fix the brain that way. Um, the counselors come along and say, well, we ought to get everyone together and talk about our problems, and if we talk about it for long enough, it'll be okay. People down the bottom say, no, we need an inclusive society where we need to include the elderly and the infirm and the insane and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, obviously, you've got a spiritual approach as well. Is this something primarily that you pray about? And I think the one thing you can do wrong in thinking about mental health problems is to major on one square and say, actually, what you need here is prayer, or what you need is some friends, or what you need is to talk about it, or what you need is some pills. It's often a combination of those things. So please don't get stuck on one square. I'm just going to bung up a few slides. Um, I'm not expecting you to, to, to read all of that, but just to sort of say there is a website, and we'll put up some more pictures of it at the end, the Mind and Soul website, and I'm very much aware that coming to do a talk to you guys today, it's a bit hit and run. There is tons and tons and tons of stuff on the Mind and Soul website, and one of the things we've been doing is, is trying to sort of get some guidelines for churches to deal with stigma about disability in general, and that includes mental health disability, because the last thing you want is um, to make someone feel uncomfortable if they're coming to church. So increasingly, people, when they're ill with their, with their brain or with their mind, they ask spiritual questions. So you will get people coming to your youth groups asking spiritual, emotional, 
big questions. Now, I know you get big questions in youth group anyway, but particularly if someone is struggling with depression and eating disorder, it, it kind of almost enhances your spiritual quest in a way. So you're going to be getting people coming to you asking those kinds of questions. And the last thing we want is a sort of reflex response from the church. You know, oh, we need to pray about this, or that's a sign that you haven't got enough faith, or something like that. So this is just a set of statements thinking about, is your church a mental health friendly and a disability friendly church? I'm sure most of you know that you don't make a church friendly for wheelchairs by putting a ramp in. It's not about the ramp. It's not about the healing loop. It's about your attitude to people with, with disabilities. And that would include depression, eating disorders, psychosis, addictions, all the kind of things I'm talking about tonight. What's your attitude? Is your attitude to put a healing ramp, uh, a, a wheelchair ramp in, or to appoint a counsellor? or something like that. Not that any of these things are bad, but that can't be your primary attitude as a church. It has to go a little bit deeper than that. And it's often the youth group where a lot of this stuff is first tested out. Okay. End of introduction. I'm going to do addictions, self-harm, and eating disorders. I think in that order. I'm going to do them quite quickly, so we've got plenty of time for questions at the end, because I'm not quite sure what you want. But think back to Freud. The big picture is... It's not about the addiction, it's about what's going on underneath. However, the addiction is the thing that you're dealing with, because that could be the thing that kills the person. Does that, does that make sense? You've got to sort of keep that kind of tension in your head. And it's the same with all, all, all kinds of problems. So if we pop the next slide up, this is um, a, a, a famous picture. of. Um, <clears throat> it's called Gin Alley. It's a woodcut. Um, there's this woman who is Gin Sally. If you've heard about Gin Sally from Gin Alley, this, this is the picture where that comes from, and her baby is falling out of her arms because she's completely geeshed and not, not fit to be a mother at all, and people are sort of drinking all around her and all that kind of stuff. And you'll see quite a lot of, um, you'll see quite a lot of substances being used in your youth groups. And if I can just introduce you to a fairly simple progression, okay? So the progression goes something like this. Normal social use, I'm working on the principle that the majority of you will have a drink from time to time and hopefully manage that relatively well. You've then got sort of unhelpful use of alcohol, people who are getting drunk, um, people who are misusing it, probably have some chronic mental health, mental, uh, mental health, physical health risks associated with that. They're drinking over the government limit, maybe. But actually, you know, week to week, it, it's just more of a problem for them. And then you're into alcohol dependency, which is chemical dependency, i.e., if you stop, you're going to get withdrawals. And this is um, something called the CAGE questionnaire. Um, I'm not suggesting you, you use it, but... Um, Someone, anyone who's a counsellor or anyone like that will probably use something like this. The CAGE questionnaire is just these simple four questions. Have you ever felt you need to cut down on your drinking? Have you felt annoyed? Have people annoyed you by criticising your drinking? Have you ever felt guilty about drinking? Have you ever felt you needed a drink first thing in the morning, i.e. an eye-opener to steady your nerves or get rid of a hangover? If you, if you answer two to those four, the chances are you're heading into the sort of territory of alcohol dependence, okay, where you're actually having to use the substance. You're not drinking it to get the euphoria from it. You're now drinking it to actually stop the withdrawal from coming back. And if you go a couple of days without a drink, you'll need it. Now, hopefully most of you won't see people in that kind of territory, but that would be where the NHS would be involved with addiction services. If the alcohol use is just harmful, or unhelpful in some kind of way, putting people into risky situations because they're not 
in full control, they're not managing their safety, they're drinking with undesirable bunches of people. That's more where alcohol counselling is helpful. And then, of course, there's, there's healthy alcohol use. And all of these things are on a spectrum. Alcohol is a fairly socially acceptable drug. Caffeine, we've had some tonight. It's a very socially acceptable drug, isn't it? There's things like heroin that are pretty much not socially acceptable. And it's to do with the addictive potential and the damage it causes. So heroin is very addictive, very damaging, and also high risk of AIDS and hepatitis if you're injecting. Caffeine, not so damaging for most people. Most people can control their level of caffeine. Most to many people could control their level of alcohol, although quite a lot have problems. Most people won't control their level of heroin. So there's a sort of spectrum of dangerousness of drug in there somewhere. The next picture, of course, just reminds you that not all um, addictions are chemical dependencies. Some of them are electrical dependencies as well. And there's a whole bunch of addictions, aren't there? Just pop the next one up there, John. So we've got um, work. Some people are addicted to work, drugs, alcohol. Some people are addicted to, to food, the, the internet, um, gambling. There's a whole bunch of different addictions out there. I guess the ones you'll probably see on Friday night or Sunday night when everybody youth club is probably going to be alcohol, maybe some cannabis, but there's a whole bunch of addictions out there. It's all about doing something to deal with emotional distress underneath. And actually, if you're doing good work in terms of helping people with their emotions, helping people with their self-esteem, you'll be doing a lot for general addictions. And just this is, um, this is a bit small, but... Um, you might have heard of something called the 12 steps. And the 12 steps is a model for moving people on from more serious addiction. I'll just, just pop it up there just so you've, you've heard of it. The 12 steps are, um, the first one is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, I came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. This is people taking a spiritual approach to alcohol disorders. Now, actually, that sounds relatively like Christianity. Uh, I realized that I was powerless over my ability not to sin and that I was a, a sinner. Um, I came to believe that there was a savior, and I decided to turn my life over to the savior, etc., etc., etc. Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening, we tried to carry this message to others. That sounds very like Matthew 28, doesn't it? The Great Commission. So the 12 steps are actually a fantastic overview of the um, Christian life. And a lot of people, if you talk to AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, they will tell you a lot of people do the, what's called the 12-step waltz, which is one, two, three, slip back. One, two, three, one, two, three. A lot of people do one, two, three over and over again. You probably see it in, 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 in your youth groups or anyone really with Christianity. You know, they realize there's a problem, they, they do that, and then they make a decision to follow Jesus, and then they're back at sort of square one again. And actually, the 12 steps are really interesting reading, not only in terms of dealing with a, a deep, you know, addictions are identity problems. Yes, there's chemical dependency in some people, but there's an identity issue there. And Christianity is, is, a, is a solution to an identity problem. And it'd be great if we could all go through the 12 steps in our Christianity, not just in our addictions. And there's a fantastic book, Howard Astin, um, The 12 and a Half Steps to Spiritual Health. He runs a church in Bradford, which is 70% um, ex-heroin addicts, if that makes sense. And um, The 12 and a Half Steps to Spiritual Health is all about um, the extra half step he's put in. I think it's step four and a half. He says... Um, you know, we need to sort of admit the nature of our wrongs to God, also the nature of the wrongs done to us. 
So it's not just that we've harmed people as a result of our addictions, and we need to confess that, but often people have harmed us. People might have been abused when they were young. They might have had complete lack of parenting, emotional barrenness when they were young. These are the kind of things that give rise to identity problems. So the Twelve and a Half Steps is a, is a fantastic book. It is all about addictions, but it's also all about life. Okay, on to self-harm. I think the first thing to say about self-harm is it works. And people in your group who will be self-harming will be doing it for a reason. Okay, they'll be doing it for a, a reason because it, it's working for them. Most people don't want to self-harm, okay? The subtle self forms of self-harming, aren't there? Tattooing, weightlifting, stuff like that. But, you know, we all self-harm sunbathing, you know, form of self-harm, you could argue. But here we're talking about cutting, burning, definitely the more severe end. But it works, and that's why it's addictive, because it does mask the pain. It does bring control over unbearable emotions. So... It's a coping mechanism. It's not the best coping mechanism in the world. It's not the healthiest coping mechanism, but it's the one they're using at the moment. So my first thing I want to say about self-harm is don't tell people to stop. And that might sound weird, and you can ask me a question about that later, but don't tell people to stop. They've probably been doing it for about two years, so they don't need to stop today. What you need to do is you need to understand what's going on. What are they trying to cover up? If you tell them to stop, They'll stop for a few weeks and they'll start again, or they'll replace it with a more serious form of self-harm. So the first thing to say about self-harm is don't tell people to stop. Next slide, John. Second thing is let's try and spot the self-harmer. You can't tell, and that's another thing, isn't it, about... Um, you, you can tell the person who's got a serious alcohol problem. You can tell the person who's got a serious psychotic illness or a serious dementia. But apart from that, I reckon 10% of you will have a significant mental health problem. I don't know which 10%, okay? Chances are a couple of you have been in a psychiatric hospital at some point. I don't know which couple, okay? So, so I don't know looking at you, and you don't know who, who the self-harmer is. It could be the professional person. It, it could be the um, emo-looking person, okay? It's equally likely to be, to be both. You might be quite surprised by the answer to that. There's a fantastic website called selfharm.co.uk, which is, um, takes an open approach. It's not just for Christians, but it's run by Luton Churches Together, and it's run by some fantastic people down in Luton, and there is tons and tons and tons on the, um, on the selfharm.co.uk um, website, and there's a whole bunch of things I've just put down the side there. It's about listening. It's about being honest. It's about getting to know them. It's not the thing that you wrap them out to the church leader just because they tell you the first time. That will freak them out. They'll never come back to youth group, okay? You've got time to find out what's going on. Now, yes, sometimes there's specific child protection concerns, okay? And sometimes there's an actual physical risk to life because the self-harm is that serious. But most of the time, don't tell anyone, okay? Don't go reporting it to the boss. You might want to tell maybe, you know, one of, one of your peer group or something like that, but this is not the kind of thing that you ought to be escalating. I think we go health and safety mad, and I think that's clinically bad for the person involved to suddenly be dragged into some kind of big meeting, okay? Affirm their positive choices, work with them, help them get alternative coping mechanisms, because they clearly need one. I'm going to play you a video for a couple of minutes just about self-harm, John, if you want to kick that off. I have no idea why I even thought about doing it. I just did it. Because I started more regularly and more severely. The little bit of I feel is actually at the beginning when the scissors first 
I told my mum that it was a paper. Kind of have like a little routine, go have a bath and then just... I did it last Monday. I often in the same places. The first night I, I thought that'd be like a one-off. Anything that I want to myself with, I can make it work. It is addictive. I concentrate on making myself bleed enough because I bleed myself for absolutely everything. And I didn't want to hurt no one. So I just thought I'd hurt myself instead. If people are going to treat me like that, then I've got to deserve some sort of... So while I'm doing that, I just totally forget about what anyone said to me. Then I just go back to reality. I've lost so many friends over it. The relationship with my parents is never going to be the same again. It is something so serious, but like nobody talks about it. So it's not something you tell someone to stop, but it is something you do talk about. And I guess one of the questions someone might ask later is, you know, do you raise it as a topic in, in your youth group? Because <laughs> it'd be a shame not to, wouldn't it? Because I'm guessing, you know, 10, 20% of your youth group are going to self-harm, maybe? Okay. You probably know the figures better than I do, but it's not no one. I can tell you that. It's, it's not no one. Let's talk about eating disorders. Let's move on. This is fast and furious tonight, okay? Who's seen Super Size, Super Skinny? Good program, bad program, don't know. A little bit of glorification going on, but at least there's a program about it, that's good. I could tell you lots of technical things about eating disorders, okay? I could tell you that um, the diagnostic criteria for anorexia involve things like um, your BMI being less than 17 and a half, um, probably you know, being so thin you're not having periods, um, things like that. You know, I can tell you what the diagnostic criteria are, but actually you don't have to be a rocket scientist to spot when someone's got a serious, eat a serious eating disorder. It's more about the identity kind of stuff that's going on underneath. Let's not forget um, bulimia, because bulimia you often can't see a thing. But if the person's vomiting three times a day, that's got effects on the acid base, the acid salt balance. You know, it can, it can lead to renal failure if it's not picked up and, and people get help. Ednos is a weird term. I just mentioned it so you've heard of it. Eating disorder not otherwise specified. Thoroughly unhelpful term, but some people have mixtures of anorexia and bulimia, things that don't quite fit, but don't worry about it unless you've heard about it. That, that's all it means. People, some people binge. They eat normally sometimes. They binge other times. Again, self-harm works. Food works, doesn't it? You know, we feel full, possibly even good after food, but we definitely feel full. It's okay until you get hungry again. And the other end of the spectrum, of course, obesity, what's going on with obesity. Again, these things are trying to get underneath about an identity disorder. So I'm just going to play you another clip. If you want to find this, um, just type Dove commercial um, eating disorders into, into Google or something, and it'll come up. Shall I'll pop the next slide up? Um, I put the link to this article. Oh, sorry, my apologies. Um, one more slide on eating disorders. Anorexia and bulimia care, anorexiabulimiacare.org.uk. One of the big eating disorder charities in the UK is a Christian one. So um, if you want particular Christian help for eating disorders, they're great people to go to. And this is what they say about eating disorders. Again, focus on feelings, not food. It's not about food control. People can do food control for a while to keep you happy, but nothing changes underneath, okay? It's about focusing on the feelings, getting to know them, do encourage them to see their GP if they're vomiting more than once a day or if um, they've lost. It's the speed of weight loss that is the problem as opposed to the absolute, you know, I mean, you can tell if someone's painfully thin, but it's, it's more the speed of weight loss that is medically risky and, and can lead to people actually, you know, it can be fatal. Okay, so heavy speed of weight loss, vomiting more than once a day, people will often need some medical support.
So those are some guidelines there. Okay. Just the next slide. Um, I put this article on the Facebook pages for this event, so if you want to find that URL, I've also put a PDF of these slides on the Facebook pages as well, so you can go and have a look at that and get all these links later. I'm not going to go into it now because we're running out of time, but just to say, actually keeping you guys sane is probably a really important place to start, and there's lots of tips in this article. Um, Youth Work Magazine asked Mind and Soul to do a feature issue, so there's a whole bunch of um, resources there from that feature issue, including um, uh, sort of, you know, lesson plans about self-harm and all that kind of stuff. So I think you can probably request that issue from the guys at Youth Foot Magazine if you want to, and that's the, the full URL to, um, to be looking at there. And um, just a resource alongside that, John, go on two slides to the one with the URL across it. Minusol.info forward slash mindset. We ran a conference with Soul Survivor. Um, we had 600 youth workers. Um, the guys at Soul Survivor said it's wonderful to have 600 youth workers here because it's a heck of a lot more smelly with 600 youth. Um, so apparently when the uh, Soul Survivor warehouse is full of 600 youth, it stinks. And this is a very nice conference because it was the youth workers and you guys all smell good, so thank you. Um, but we, we ran a fantastic day down at Soul Survivor and all of the audio slides and handouts, there's a full hour on self-harm, full hour on eating disorders, full hour on addictions there at that event, are all available, minus all the info forward slash mindset, so please do have a look at that. John, just play the video on the um, previous page there. A little bit about the Minus on website before I finish. Um, there is quite a lot on, on this. Um, Premiere are the guys who do Christianity magazine and Youth Work magazine, and Premier Lifeline is their sort of phone-in. Premier Lifeline is a fantastic 365 days a year, 9 a.m. to midnight counseling service. The Minus on website has got lots and lots and lots on it. There's about a couple of hundred audios, there's about 500 different articles, there's events, there's all kinds of stuff, blogs, you name it. There's all sorts of things going on there. So please do have a look at the Mind and Soul website and the Premier Lifeline if you don't want, not that you wouldn't recommend something like Samaritans or Breathing Space or something like that, but if you want to recommend a Christian helpline for people to phone, Premier Lifeline is there and I think the number's going to come up at the end of the video.